Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. What I'm going to focus is on uh, mostly on the neural uh, transplantation cell therapy aspect. But before that, I want to uh, disclose that uh, I'm the co-founder of uh, Brain Cell uh, in Medicine and uh, also the Brain Cell Therapeutics actually in San Diego. Okay, so because I'm going to focus on the nervous system, I, I, I think uh, everybody here or in Zoom knows that uh, the brain uh, actually is uh, built precisely by numerous of uh, neurons and glial cells. And uh, I think if we Google it, uh, there will be like a, you know, 80 to 100 billion neurons. Uh, what I would like to emphasize is that uh, these neurons are all specialized. There are many, many different kinds of neurons that build this kind of network. And uh, each neuron, you know, have all this connection. Again, it's a specialized connection called synapses. And that's why our brain uh, operates very much like a network of uh, this uh, numerous uh, uh, specialized network, and it's like a supercomputer. Of course, way more than just a supercomputer. Any computer in the world that cannot compete with the brain we have, you know. Uh, so that actually brings to the question when it comes to repairing the brain, the damaged brain or diseased brain, is very, very tough because. Uh, we not only need to replace the lost cells, but also need to rebuild or at least modify the neural circuits um, in order finally to restore the function. So it's uh, very challenging when it comes to uh, repair the, uh, the nervous system. Now, there are many ways to repair the brain, right? Um, one is to have the stem cell in the brain to regenerate. But of course, uh, that has been explored by many people here uh, in San Diego. And the issue is that uh, those stem cells are generally limited in certain area of the brain. And so when it comes to other parts of the brain, it becomes uh, uh, difficult. An alternative way is to turn some of the cells, let's say glial cells, into neurons. So that's a very exciting area. I think it's a potentially very promising area uh, of uh, regeneration. And the slightly better 
developed area is uh, cell transplantation, meaning transplanting exogenous cells to replace and repair the, uh, the lost neurons. And this will work better, particularly for some diseases with uh, localized uh, damage and uh, particularly certain cell types. And ideally also the circuit is relatively simple. So this will be a better option for cell transplantation uh, strategy. And a good example perhaps is uh, Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease uh, is caused by degeneration of the dopamine nerve cells in the midbrain, particularly substantial nigra. And when these neurons are degenerated, uh, so they, they usually connect with the the so-called striatum, called it the putamen, um, and they release less dopamine, and so it leads to a series of symptoms uh, related to movement disorder, like uh, you know chamber rigidity, uh, posture issues, uh, posture issues, and so because it's uh, well defined, uh, uh, relatively well defined disease based on the um, uh, cell type and the mechanism. And so now we have a reasonably good uh, treatment. Uh, for example, we can use uh, AODOBA to replace the lost dopamine uh, or use surgical uh, to modify the circuit, uh, which I mentioned. Um, the problem is this uh, treatment usually do not last very long. You know, let's say AODOBA treatment after several years, um, when the dopamine neurons keep dying and they're lost, they cannot convert this uh, AODOBA to dopamine. Then you need to add, uh, keep adding large amount of do- AODOBA in order to work. And in the end, they usually lose uh, its effect. And so that's why people are trying hard to develop uh, alternative ways to deal with uh, uh, the the debilitating disease. And cell therapy is one of the uh, potential treatment that people are developing. And this actually has been tried for quite a long time. It's uh, surprising using, initially using fetal tissues, and particularly uh, by the group in in Lund, Sweden, I think it, uh, when they dissected out the midbrain tissues, usually five to nine weeks old embryo, and and take uh, quite a few embryo, the tissue from a few embryo, and then transplant into one patient. And uh, for some patients, actually, they live for quite uh, many years after transplantation. They are they were later on less dependent on AODUBA. Their symptom improved uh, quite substantially. Um, but in, in the double-blind clinical trials, actually there were two in the U.S. sponsored by NIH. In, that, uh, in those two trials, the, uh, they were not very successful. They were very much mixed uh, kind of uh, outcome. And so when 
many people look at the issue why some success succeeded, some failed, and there are many, many issues involved in clinical trial. But one of the main issue is uh, the inconsistent and the, the poor quality of the donor tissues. And because you need to collect the, quite a few tissues together and wait until you have enough to put into one patient, and that's a tough job, you know. And so the hope is that if we have the consistent source, cell therapy might work for Parkinson's disease. And that leaves the, uh, brings the hope when the pluripotent stem cell was first established uh, by Jimmy Thompson. It's called the uh, embryonic stem cells. And later on, developed further uh, by Yamanaka, the induced pluripotent stem cell. Because those cells uh, can give rise to pretty much any kinds of cells that uh, build our body, including nerve cells. So initially, we uh, took uh, some effort to generate uh, uh, this human embryonic stem cell to dopamine neurons. At that time, because we knew that the wind is important, but we could not really activate the wind effectively, so we use uh, FGF8, which is also involved in midbrain dopaminergic development. So at that time, we generate dopamine neurons and put into the rats, uh, lesion with uh, 6-hydroxy-dopamine uh, that creates the Parkinson's model. And in this model, we can actually repair the uh, re replace the uh, lost cell and uh, make the, the animal recover from some of the motor deficit. But those neurons may not be the, the right type of dopamine neurons because, uh, because of the, our ability to really pattern to the midbrain. So Several years later, I think uh, quite a few labs almost simultaneously developed uh, the method to guide the human stem cell to really authentic uh, midbrain dopaminergic neuron because of the availability of a small molecule called the CHIR, which can pattern the cells very precisely to the midbrain. And from Lawrence's lab, uh, Martin Palmer's lab, and our lab, you know, we, we kind of uh, guide the stem cell to dopamine neurons. And this actually is uh, reasonably simple. So if we give uh, the stem cell, when we guide the stem cell to neural epithelial cell, and at the same time, you know, give uh, the small molecule to activate the wind the signaling, and you can see the uh, those dependent change uh, in terms of uh, transcription factors that relate to the anterior to posterior. So at one concentration, roughly 0.6 micromolar, we can see that, that the cells turn into midbrain type of cells. 
And of course, the higher concentration will drive the cell to hindbrain and uh, cervical spinal cord. And then, in the presence of a hedgehog, which needs to be ventralize the cell to the floor plate, because the midbrain dopaminergic neurons come from the floor plate cells. And so, in the presence of both of these factors, this cell, many of the cells become dopaminergic neuron expressed tyrosine hydroxylase, as well as a whole series of transcription factors like in glio one FOXA2, LEMX1A, and so on and so forth. Interestingly, when those cells are differentiated in a petri dish and uh, using this method, they actually also behave like the neurons in vivo. They have a tonic firing kind of uh, 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 properties. They even have this SAG potential, which is characteristic of the dopamine neurons in the substantial nigro. Um, and, you know, so we have those cells. Then the question is, uh, can we really um, repair the brain? So there are a series of uh, issues we need to really address before we really move toward that direction. One is that whether we need a very specific type of neuron for each of the neurological conditions. Um, Probably the more important question is, if you put the, the neurons into the brain, whether they can project the nerves to their right target. The equally important question is whether the transplanted neuron also receive input. Because the neuron connect to each other in pre- and postsynaptic uh, ways so that you can regulate the, the neuronal activity in a proper way. And so finally, of course, whether that kind of connectivity uh, really contributes to the functional way that, uh, it, it, which is lost in the particular disease. And so most, uh, the first question is that uh, for Parkinson's disease, when we transplant dopamine neuron, how do they work? So the way we addressed this question was uh, to use uh, optogenetics and uh, chemogenetics so that uh, you can regulate the, the neuronal activity after they were transplanted into the brain. So. I think Lawrence Studer's lab uh, uh, use uh, uh, optogenetics, and our lab use chemogenetics. Uh, so basically, we build genetically modified the cells, engineer the switch, functional switch. You can uh, turn on and off the function of the cell when the cells are transplanted into the stratum. So in this case, we both transplant the cell into the stratum. So the whole stratum is filled with the human axons uh, because when they transplanted dopaminergic neurons, uh, the, the cell will fill the gap. And, and then we turn on and off the function of the 
transplanted cell and look for the activity change using electrophysiologist recording of the brain slides. And just to uh, summarize, it turns out that the, the grafted uh, human dopamine neurons, the way by which they work uh, is to regulate the, the endogenous signaling from glutamine signaling to the GABAergic neuron in the stratum. Basically, what it says is that uh, the way the transplanted cells do is very much similar to the way the endogenous dopamine neurons work to regulate the signaling between the glutamate neuron from cortex, uh, thalamus, and elsewhere to the uh, striatum. That's how it modulates the, the uh, motor activity of the um, the net neural network controlling motor activity. Now, the transplantation of dopamine neuron into the striatum mainly tests whether the cells produce dopamine or not. It really does not uh, address uh, some of the questions I initially put. One is whether they can project and find their target. Two is whether they can receive the appropriate uh, signals. And so what we did uh, is uh, transplanting the cells back to the substantial nigro. That's where the dopamine neurons live normally. And uh, when we transplant the cells there, we can ask a question, can they glue their axons? Where do they glue? Can they find their right uh, partners? And so just to show you a couple of slides, uh, here is a sagittal section, serial section. And you can see this is the transplanted area. It's uh, the substantial nigro. And the dark dots or fibers are the human-specific uh, labeling for human nerves. And you can see these fibers go from the nigro all the way to the stratum. This is a magnified view, and you can see in the stratum. So meaning, one, the axon actually can project in a long distance. Two, they actually go into the stratum. That's where the axons, the midbrain dopaminergic neuron, particularly the substantial nigro dopaminergic neuron, normally go. And to make it a little bit further, if you, if, if you pay attention to here, the fibers are actually mostly in the dorsal part of the stratum. If some of you know the neural anatomy, the midbrain dopaminergic neuron in the substantial nigro project mostly into the dorsal stratum. Those in the VTA project into other areas, ventral. Uh, stratum and uh, other parts of the brain relate to uh, uh, rewarding other kind of uh, function. And so it's striking that the cells 
project exactly to the dorsal stratum. That's shocking to me initially when I saw that slide. Um, and that we use, uh, this is a, a, a cross section, it's the same, uh, just to show you, it's uh, using a different method, use a TH reporter, and you can see the tyloxine hydrolysis fibers are mostly in the stratum, again, in the dorsal stratum. So, so the cells can move and find their target. And uh, is that, uh, <clears throat> the, the question then is how do the cells do this kind of job? Or if you place any cell type into the substantial knife, they will do the same job. And so we actually transplant a different type of cells. One is dopaminergic neuron, another is, uh, so the dopaminergic neuron, I just show you that they project to the, to the, dorsal stratum. And we also differentiate the cortical neurons from the same stem cell and transplant to the same place, nigro. And now you see the cell also can project, but they project elsewhere. It's uh, thalamus uh, and the cortex, uh, other areas, which are the areas that the cortical neuron project to. So, so this set of uh, comparison means that the, the cells can project in the uh, mature brain, but where they go depends on the cell types. They have their cognate uh, partners and they will find them. And that's striking, you know. Um, Another part is, how do they achieve that goal? If we zoom in and look at the, the cells, dopamine neuron transplant into the um, substantial nigra and follow the fibers, how they get to the stratum. And you see that the, they actually follow the mid-brain, four-brain bundles. That's the way normally the dopamine neurons in the substantial nigro go in vivo. And, and once the fibers get to the ventral part of the stratum and then turn around, and they're going up to the dorsal part, and then they branch out extensively. And this route is exactly what the... the endogenous uh, um, dopamine neurons do. And that's how striking it is. And this, of course, uh, I show you just as an example for how cells find their targets. The reality is that we actually uh, did a series of work over the past decade that uh, uh, the cells always behave like that. For example, uh, almost a decade ago, um, we transplanted uh, um, the medial spiny GABAergic neuron versus GABAergic interneuron into the striatum for Huntington's uh, disease. And it turns out that only the medium spiny GABAergic neuron can project 
correct uh, to their targets and correct the functional deficit. Not the interneuron. Even though they both are GABAergic neurons, even though both can survive, but only the medium spiny GABAergic neuron. The similar thing is when we look at the uh, mediaceptum lesion, create the learning memory model, deficit model, and then we use GABA interneuron and the cholinergic neuron. One is forebrain, another is uh, spinal cord, meaning different type of uh, the same kind of uh, new, different type of neurons with same type of transmitters. But again, it's the forebrain cholinergic neuron and the uh, GABAergic neuron contribute, connect to their target and contribute to their function. And even in the spinal cord injury model, I think this is uh, what I collaborated with Mark Tolinsky here. You know, when we place the forebrain neuroprogenital cells versus spinal neuroprogenital cells, and it's the spinal progenitor cell that checked the cortical spinal tract into the graft. Um, we actually recently did that because now we can actually generate a different subtypes of spinal interneurons. And uh, we transplant to the spinal cord injury model, and uh, they find their specific targets. And so this kind of cell type specific uh, kind of past finding, finding their partners and contributing to their function is uh, really quite a uh, general phenomenon um, in, uh, in the way that uh, we, in the past, we felt that uh, the neuron usually cannot do that uh, in vivo, you know. But they actually follow, even in the mature brain, the, the immature neurons still behave like uh, what they do during development, and which opens the possibility for uh, cell therapy to work, I think. So I talked so much about where the exons go, how they go. The other side of the question is, after the cells are transplanted into the brain, do they receive the right inputs? And that is very important, because if the transplant cells do not receive the correct inputs, their transmitter release, their circuit activity transmission will not be regulated appropriately, and that can create problems. And so the way we did was that we labeled the cells genetically, and then we can use rabies virus tracing to look at what presynaptic inputs the transplanted cell receive. And uh, we also label the cell using reporter lines, let's say tyrosine hydroxylates. And then we can take the brain and slice them and electrophysiologically record them to look at the, what kinds of input they receive. Uh, because this, uh, and, and we compare the inputs they receive when we transplant cell into the substantial nigro versus the striatum. And to ask the question whether they receive the similar inputs, what dictates the input that they receive? And 
just to summarize, because it's a huge amount of data, um, if we look at the, the rabies virus tracing, and uh, we look at uh, where, where in, meaning the, which part of the brain, you know, which parts of the brain they send exons to the transparency cell, and we compare with endogenous uh, dopaminergic neuron, it turns out they are quite similar. However, depending on where we transplant, meaning stratum or the substantial nigra, the transplantation site can influence the input. And this is uh, important. Um, but uh, then we look at the electrophysiology recording, look at the functional inputs, because this is the most important part, because that will tell us how the activity is, uh, of the transplanted cells is regulated. And uh, the functional inputs actually is established long after the anatomic connection, meaning we actually observe this anatomic connection based on rabies virus tracing in just a few months after transplantation. But the reality is there is not much activity. If we look at persynaptic current, it takes at least six months or longer in order for them to establish functional connectivity. And that's important because uh, that can explain why when we transplant the, the cells already make connection, the reality is we do not see much improvement because it, it takes time for them to establish functional connection. Another part is what kind of inputs. In this, way, in this case, we just uh, categorized in a very simple way, excitatory versus inhibitory. Um, and then uh, if we compare different type of neurons, red is dopaminergic neuron and green is non-dopaminergic neuron, just in a simple way, and then in the stratum versus the nigro, and compare them. And uh, it was just to summarize, because it's a very complicated uh, uh, way, just to tell that uh, in this way, if we only look at the, the inhibitory versus excitatory inputs, if we compare dopaminergic neuron versus non-dopaminergic neuron, and so the dopaminergic neuron usually receive more this kind of uh, inhibitory inputs than the excitatory inputs. And if we compare the dopaminergic neuron we transplanted, versus the dopaminergic neuron in situ, meaning in those in the substantial neuron. They are very similar, actually. And that piece of data tells us that, uh, hey, the cell type, again, can dictate the inputs they receive if we put back into the right place. So that's even more exciting, meaning if we have the right type of cells, they not only can project out to the right uh, place, target, but also receive the appropriate signal. And so that will make the cell therapy work.
Um, and, and that actually is illustrated here by looking at the, the functional outcome. We use uh, a number of uh, different uh, behavior measures for the animals. And uh, uh, one is the rotation test. Um, so normally, when we transplant back to the substantial Niagara, you can see the rotation. Uh, because we only lesion one side of the striatum uh, nigro. So when we stimulate the animal with amphetamine, they release dopamine, and so they rotate it to one side. When after transplantation, particular transplant to the nigro, they recover to the normal baseline. Um, if we transplant to the striatum, they recover much faster because uh, you, know, you put it right into the target area. But often they overcompensate it because those cells are less regulated, well-regulated, because it's in the wrong place. Um, the, so, so the video simply wants to show you that we can actually regulate the, the activity of the neurons, and uh, so you can regulate the behavior. Um, so I just want to summarize here, uh, so far, what I have shown you that uh, we can generate uh, the right type of cell. I use dopamine neurons as an example. Uh, we, our lab actually has generated many different kinds of neurons. But uh, as I mentioned, that, that this dopaminergic neuron have the right the transcriptional code. And uh, they have uh, very characteristic, uh, even the physiological behaviors. Um, important part I mentioned that when we transplant those cells, they actually know where to project and who to find as a target and also receive the uh, right uh, inputs. And that the important part in this building of the neural circuit is that it's the, the Path finding, the target finding, and the, the partner, the input partner, to a large degree depends on the cell identity. And this is a very interesting finding. And, uh, and once they rebuild this kind of uh, pre and persynaptic uh, network, uh, and you can see this. Uh, functional uh, recovery in those uh, uh, mice. Um, with this kind of finding, it's, uh, we move on to the preclinical model in non-human primates. So one way we did was to take uh, the skin cell from Parkinson's monkey and uh, differentiate them into dopamine neurons and then transplant back to the monkey. And this is uh, autologous uh, um, transplantation. Um, we, we set up a control uh, that is uh, transplanting to another monkey, which would be allergenic transplantation. And in this case, we pick up a relatively old animals, um, because uh, Parkinson's disease developed uh, 
relatively in uh, late stage of our life. Um, and uh, we made the sales and let the, uh, made the Parkinson's model and let them stay stabilized for a couple of years because normally those, uh, if we are going to do cell therapy, those patients probably will not be willing to do that initially because they have uh, a, a reasonable uh, treatment option. And so we, we actually try to mimic uh, as much as we can to the clinical condition. So we waited quite uh, a, f- a couple of years or a few years and that before we do transplantation. Because this is to test uh, for autologous transplantation, so we did not give any immunosuppression for both groups. Uh, and then look at their behavior and imaging and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and it was interesting to observe that uh, pretty much uh, the animal began to show symptom improvement starting from roughly half year. The, the blue dots are the animals with autologous transplantation. The red dots are the allogenetic transplantation. And you see both the clinical rating score and the fine motor skill tests both shows in begin to recover at uh, about uh, six months post-transplantation and relatively stabilized after one year. And so pretty much all those animals recover in this way. And uh, correspondingly, when we use uh, PET imaging to show the dopamine binding potential, you see that in the allogenetic transplantation, you do not see much. This is the lesion side. And then uh, this is autologous animals. Before the transplantation, you do not see it. That side is pretty much empty. Um, in this, uh, after transplantation, now you see this uh, binding potential increased substantially in these sites. And so corresponding to the behavior um, uh, improvement, uh, we see this uh, uh, dopamine uh, release and binding here. And then uh, later on, when we look at the histology, you see in the, even in the allergenetic transplantation, there are, there are grafts, actually, even without immune suppression, the grafts are there. But usually, in the allergenic transplantation, they are small, and they are compact, and they have a clear boundary. And this is a, a typical autologous transplant. You see the graft is bigger, but more diffuse. You do not see boundary. It almost like a fuse to the host tissue. And, uh, and the, you, this is slightly higher magnification. You see the axonal growth. These are TH fibers grow out. And you see the end axonal terminal branching out. And these are the typical morphology of the endogenous dopamine neurons in the substantial nigra. Um, 
And this is exciting because we have uh, several animals. Uh, we look at uh, the relationship between the number of dopaminergic neurons in each animal, the amount of uh, pet binding, and uh, the degree of behavior recovery. It turns out there is a correlationship between the number of dopaminergic neurons in the transplanted area uh, and the behavior recovery. And uh, <coughs> roughly, uh, we feel that uh, it requires roughly 70,000 dopaminergic neurons for the monkey brain in order for the animal to recover. And, and we roughly calculated that the monkey requires that. In human, it's uh, roughly four times bigger, and it probably will need uh, roughly 300,000 dopaminergic neurons for, for the patients. And we look back uh, what has been shown in the past with fetus tissue transplantation, where the transplant was successful. It turns out that uh, roughly in this range, uh, when those patients show recovery, and there are roughly this number of uh, dopamine neurons in the brain. Okay. So this uh, piece of uh, uh, preclinical study showing us that uh, the autologous transplantation, it works even without immunosuppression. You know, it at least uh, uh, make the animal recover. Um, um, but the allogeneic transplantation will be valuable. It, it tells us that if we are going for allogeneic transplantation, we will need the immune suppression, because otherwise the, uh, the tissue probably will be limited. Um, and uh, there is a clear correlation between the number of uh, transplanted cells with the behavior and, uh, and the pet binding. Um, so I talk, I use two examples, uh, one in rodent, one in monkey, to show uh, where, how we start from the stem cell and gradually move toward the uh, clinical uh, directions. And I mentioned earlier that uh, you know in the 80s, and people already started trying uh, the using fetal tissue for treating Parkinson's disease. Now I think we have uh, a number of groups working on it. One actually was done by the Harvard group uh, using autologous uh, cell therapy that was published in New England Journal of Medicine. I think now there are several groups uh, around the world uh, working on, some are already in uh, clinical trials. So we are on the way. Of course, there are a number of issues uh, still need to be solved. Uh, I think I only use uh, maybe the dopamine neuron as an example. We feel that we are ready, but uh, there are still rooms to, uh, for improvement, I think. Uh, for example, the cell, the dopamine neuron we generated, uh, mid-brain type of dopaminergic neuron, but uh, may be contaminated by some other kind of neuron. Because when we use one concentration of a morphogene, we usually ended up with a spectrum of the cells besides the main target cells. 
whether we use high or low wind agonist, we will end up with the same things. Um, and so we need to really work out. This is just the example for dopamine neuron, but for other neuronal type, it's the same. So the principle we put forth in our um, <coughs> review article, um, I think in 2016, is you can actually limit the cell to only one type of cell by uh, restricting the cell to only one tiny uh, brain regions. Another part, of course, related to cell therapy is whether we go after autologous or allergenic. Uh, you know, there are always debate in terms of science, in terms of business or cost, all sorts of things. I think uh, this is something we may deal with uh, each of the disease in a different way. Um, so far, I talked uh, about the rodents and now monkey, but still. They are animals, they are smaller. When it comes to human, a simple thing is the size and distance. You know, for example, if we are going to treat the stroke patients and we transplant the cell into the cortex, in mice, it's still pretty long, but it's doable. But when it comes to human, and if you want the neuron to grow from the cortex up I mean, down on the way to the brainstem and the spinal cord. It's a daunting job, and so we still have a long way to go, I think. So I will stop here by thanking a number of people who did uh, uh, involved in this work, particularly uh, Man and Yuqun, both uh, left my lab several years ago. I think they have their own lab. I think they even got tenure, I think. Um, Yunlong is the one working on the monkey uh, transplant. He's in the market now um, for faculty job. And I want to thank uh, my longtime collaborator, particularly Melinda Emborg, uh, for working with me on the monkey uh, studies. And uh, Brad Christians for the uh, imaging part. And of course, uh, for the funding source, particularly in NIH. And thank you. I will stop here uh, for any possible questions and comments. All right. Uh, my question is uh, first about um, the safety issues. I'm assuming that none of those experiments, even in the monkeys, you see any kind of a tumor arising from those cells in in in. And imagining humans that this would be there for long times, mm -hmm. I mean, how can we be sure that these cells will not develop uh, something that is uh, is not what you expect? Yeah, um, this always the first thing when we move on to patients, right? Safety is number one. You have to get through FDA requirement. I think in most of the Animal studies we have done in our lab, and also because we are involved in a consortium, international consortium on Parkinson's therapy. I think uh, so far the animal work, both in rodent and monkeys, show that these cells are safe. Safe in a way that because we differentiate the cell to neuro. You, you've been working on neural differentiation, even though you work on mostly organoid, but still, you know, 
after two weeks, it's very hard to imagine for the stem cell, pluripotent stem cell I'm talking about, to survive under that kind of condition. That's number one. Number two, that the current neural differentiation, particularly for dopamine differentiation, is quite efficient, and the cells are mostly in the neural lineage. Not, not even, not even much in other meso or endoderm lineage, and so in a way that it's quite limited for the cell to grow as tumor. Of course, uh, when it comes to moving toward the clinic, uh, there will be a lot of assays required by FDA to demonstrate that uh, they will not form tumor, both in terms of in vitro QC, quality control kind of measure, as well as in vivo safety measures. I think uh, that is the way we do for every drug, every new drug, I think we will have to deal with. So, great. Um, so you have to realize this is not coming from a neurologist. So um, <laughs> with, with your last point about, you know, the anatomy of, of where you transplant uh, these cells, and I didn't sort of fully appreciate that you were yeah. putting these in the cortex and they were migrating or whatever to this substantia nigra. But, I mean, I actually remember those studies by Kurt Fried, you know, 20 years ago, where they actually, you know, drilled in the brain to be blunt, right, and, and implanted them, you know, I thought, in or near the substantia nigra. And so I don't know, like you said, there are some studies going on, I think, you know, Lauren Studer's group and others. Where are they implanting them? In- and then the second question is um, about you know, the underlying cause of the Parkinson's disease, right? So unlike the animal models, you're putting them into, you know, some sort of environment that I don't even, you know, think we know what causes the okay. disease. <laughs> okay, I, I, I try to understand. So the first question is where to put the, the cells in, which part of the brain? I mean, so mostly in clinical trial for fetal tissues in the past, and for the clinical trial now ongoing, or many of the clinical trials are in the planning, the cells are put into the putamen or caudate, mostly putamen, um, or we call it the striatum in the brain. So those are the area where the dopamine nerve cells project their axons too, so meaning their target area. Because if we transplant into the substantial nigra in the midbrain, the nerve needs to grow in a long distance to their target, which would take probably years. And so that's why for clinical practice, we want to overcome that distance barrier just directly put into their target area. So that's what I mentioned, that uh, there are issues involved in putting into their target versus in their home location because their inputs, the inputs the cell receive to regulate their transmit release is different. So that's one question. I think your second question, if I understand correctly, is that uh, the model we use actually is an acute kind of lesion. 
But the reality in Parkinson's patients, you know, there are a lot of pathology going on, right? And this pathology could invade or, 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 or make the transplanted cell undergo the same type of pathology. Is that what I'm, yeah, I guess that's what you are uh, alluding to. And indeed, there are, there are evidences to show that the, the transplanted cell may also develop this kind of degeneration type pathology over the years. However, it takes time, just like a Parkinson's patient develop the disease, you know, over 40, 50, 60 years. The same happens to the transplanted cells. You know, I think there are three or four reports when they look at the fetal tissue transplantation after, I think, 11 years, probably is about 2% of the cell showing some pathology. I think uh, 24 years, maybe 11% of the cell showing this pathology. And normally, we usually lose 80% of the cells before we show a symptom. So in a way, even they are going to develop this kind of pathology, it's still a useful therapy because it takes many, many years for them to develop. Let's take a few of the questions that are coming in online. one of the questions is, is, is kind of pertinent to what you were just talking about. The, the questioner said that he loved the autologous approach, meaning IPS-derived uh-huh. cells um, from the recipient. But uh, this questioner was asking, for those that believe that Parkinson's disease has an autoimmune component, would that be a problem uh, in, in that you're actually taking cells from a patient that may have derived the disease yeah. beca- because the I, system was attacking the dopaminergic right. neurons and others? I think that's a great question. If it's an autoimmune disease, then you have uh, the problem because uh, you have the same target cells. Uh, I don't know how strong the evidence is about autoimmune disease. Let's say there is one. I think uh, ideally we probably should... Uh, modify the, the cells before we do transplantation. That probably would be ideal. I think uh, um, even, I, I don't know how strong the uh, evidence, because uh, even for autoimmune disease, uh, those patients still you know, develop uh, the disease uh, usually in their decades of life, right? So hopefully, if we can still help the patient for two or three decades, I think it may still be useful. But I do agree that if there is autoimmune components, I think ideally we should modify the cells to avoid, to evade the immune reaction. Probably would be a better way to go. The, uh, this questioner uh, was asking, I'm combining a few of the questions uh-huh. now, uh, this questioner was asking if you could clarify what immunosuppression did with the allograft uh, animals and was wondering, um, a few of these questioners were wondering, when you, use immunosupp- when you uh, omit immunosuppression from the allograft, does that mean the allograft does not work as well as the autograft? 
And then another question would be, if you did use immunosuppression with the allograft, would, that, would, that, would those cells now function just as well? And that might be a practical therapy. <laughs> okay. Um, so in the experiment we did for the monkeys, we actually did not use any immune suppression because I mentioned that uh, we tried to test the, the autologous transplantation. So in that, under that kind of condition, the allograft, they are still graft, but I mentioned that they are small and they are restricted. So that's why I was saying that ideally, if we are going to do allograft, we should use immune suppression. And I think people did, particularly Jun Takahashi's lab from Japan, I think they did this type of work. If, if the cells, the transplanted animals are under immune suppression, the allograft can survive and contribute to the functional recovery. Okay. So you think that had you used immunosuppression, mm-hmm. then those monkeys might have done as well right. as the autograft. Correct. Which then gets into another question mm-hmm. is, um, in a very practical way, when you need to start t- treating patients, is your intent to make IPS lines from every patient, or do you think you could have a universal donor line maybe with some immunosuppression? Right. I think... Uh, for autologous transplantation, which we are doing now, we will make IPS cell from individual patient. In, in this case, we don't need immune suppression because we already shown in the non-human primate we don't need immune suppression. However, if we are going to use uh, one cell line, let's, whether it's from ESL or IPS cell, and apply it for all the patients, which is allogenic transplantation. Then we need immune suppression. Of course, another part is that many people are now working so hard trying to produce the hyperimmunogenic cells or the universal donor cells. That would be wonderful if they can work even without immune suppression. Probably idea at the beginning, we may still want to do some immune suppression to protect the cells first, and then taper off. Great. Any any questions out in the audience? Okay. Um, going back to that uh, question about the site of the transplantation, because yeah. your data <laughs> suggests something else that you are trying to do clinically. Really? And I understand, I mean, you're imagining okay. that it would take several years for the right projections to be in the right place. But once they are there, I think they would work much better than if you transplant right on, on, on target. And a related question, which I think it's amazing biological question, it is, you are transplanting very young embryonic cells. How come they're finding the right pathway in a more mature brain? Terrific question. The first question, ideally, I would love to do that. Um, and in, in that case, you need to ask the nerve to the transplanted neuron to work harder, to grow exon faster. Because otherwise, if they cannot make to their target within 
certain time, they maybe get tired or in our, in what we learned, you know, after a certain time, they do not make their target that the neuron may be eliminated or something like that. So I, I submitted an NH grant for that uh, last week or the week before, try to make, uh, make it, uh, the exon grow faster <laughs> to achieve what you try to say. <laughs> um, the second question, I sort of, uh, I <laughs> joked, I forgot your second question. Oh. <laughs> Is how come a very oh, young oh, embryonic yeah. cells the young, find their ways in the mature brain? Yeah, you, you, you hit the point, the young cells. If they are not young, let's say if you take the mouse, adult mouse, two months old, and you make injury, those neurons have a hard time to regenerate. I think many of the people here in San Diego and also elsewhere, if, if you turn the cells around, make them feel young, you know, change SOX3 or some other kind of a gene, mTOR. Um, and then when the cells feel young, they are young embryonic type of cell, they actually can regrow, right? That, there are plenty of uh, um, evidences uh, there, even in vivo. And so I try to make analogy with this type of observation that the neuron we transplanted are young. We, we usually just use progenitor cell right before they become post-mitotic neuron. And if, and we actually did some experiment, but we never published it because when we, before transplantation, we make the cells uh, getting out of cell cycle and then transplanting, they, they never make it because one is they do not survive well during the transplantation. Two is that uh, when they are post-mitotic, uh, they, um, they feel they are old like me, you know, and then they just do not grow. Um, and so, so that, that's where I think the key word is when they are young, they can actually grow, they can still find their target and their partners. That's what I understand. All right. There are some questions uh, on online that are kind of on. The, I'll combine a few of them. They're on the same theme of degree of maturity of the cells when you do the transplant. So one of the questioners was going, uh, "Have you ever taken these cells and put them in an embryonic brain to see what they do?" And related to that, have you ever really gone exceedingly immature, like taken neural progenitors, not dopaminergic progenitors, but neural progenitors, and seen whether the in vivo environment can provide the necessary cues? Yeah, uh, very good point. I think uh, for putting the cell into the developing brain, I, from the beginning, I mentioned to Evan that I use Evan's method <laughs> transplant to the <laughs> developing brain, particularly newborn brain, you know, and that they can incorporate into many areas, many parts of the brain. And uh, remember uh, Steve Goldman's uh, work uh, when he transplanted the cell into the, uh, the newborn mice. Uh, and the cell incorporated into the larger area of the brain replace uh, uh, much part of the glial cells. Now, in terms of uh, earlier stages versus the dopaminergic uh, progenitor cells, 
So that's a, a really important question because uh, if we take just the, the, the so-called neuroprogenital cell that they are not specified or committed to certain lineage, then we may run into an issue that uh, their fate is not determined and only determined by the environment. So it's a kind of uh, area that we cannot predict where they go. And so that's probably not the way we want to intend. And so that is why we usually try to restrict the cell to the dubinergic lineage, midbrain venture, midbrain type of, and even further down a little bit to the dubinergic fit. Because floor plate, venture, uh, floor plate, progenitor still can give rise to different type of uh, uh, cells. And so, so this way we can predict uh, what's going to happen. And that I listed in my slide, but I didn't talk about it, meaning uh, what we observed is that uh, when we look at the in vitro properties of those neurons, we have, let's say, 50% of the dopaminergic neuron in vitro. And when we look at the in vivo after transplantation and quantify them, and it's the same proportion, meaning you actually can predict what you have in vitro for the outcome in vivo. And that is very important. So that's why I think the question hit at the right point, that you need to have the right type of cells for transplantation. I think they're late. Yeah, um, so I'm hitting back again on the site of transplanting, despite Alison and Dan asking that question. So. Uh, one thing I'm confused is, since the um, damage is mostly in substantia nigra in patients, there's a lot of inflammation, fibrosis, and things going on. And uh, your data suggests that it is better to put in substantia nigra based on the data. But in the striatum, on the contrary, your behavior shows overcorrection, which potentially is high dopamine, unwanted dopamine corrections of more, which we are trying to address, uh, address with respect to L-dopa therapy and all. So how do you reconcile? What is the consensus? Where, where we should put the cells, and what's the middle ground or, or the right approach here? Very good point. Very good. Um, so what we did by showing the transplantation into the nigra versus the stratum is to show the behavior of the cells because it's just a model system. When you transplant to the stratum, that model tells you whether the cell produced dopamine or not. That's all. It doesn't tell you much more. So that's why we transplant to the stratum. It will tell you how they grow, you know, how they receive uh, inputs, these type of things. But when it comes to clinics, that's separate. I think uh, we already touched that uh, for now, or even in the past, uh, with fetal tissue transplantation, for example, or for all the clinical trials we are doing, including my own group, we try to do is to put the cell into the stratum. Partly because what you just said, for the most part, I think uh, we want to overcome the distance barrier. Because if we put the cells into the substantial nigro, the cell need 
to go for, I don't know, several millimeters uh, in order to get to the striatum. And that takes many years. And you may not see outcome in many years. So I think there are issues surrounding the clinical application. I think you are right. And another part, I think it's related to what Dan and other mentioned, that the, the pathology in that environment, it may also help by putting into the state. Yeah, so uh, related, uh, these, these projections are great. Um, they need to connect to the right synapses, right uh, um, corresponding cells. But uh, over, I mean, uh, exuberant connections with uh, unwanted connections uh, when they project uh, too much, uh, that also is an issue. So uh, is there anybody addressing this? I mean, is, do you see any side um, unwanted behavior or things like that because of this unwanted connection or unwanted uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, we discussed this issue in our consortium. So the animal model we used, like rodents, we mostly look at the uh, uh, motor function and uh, not uh, many other functions we look at it. Uh, I think uh, in the monkeys, uh, we look at uh, many other behaviors. We videotape them. Um, and analyze them. And so, you know, like many Parkinson's patients, when you have this chronic uh, debilitating disease, uh, many patients are depressed, uh, you know, uh, have all this kind of uh, related behavior. The monkeys do have this type of behavior, depression, uh, even self-injury, this type of uh, uh, behavior. And... uh, when we transplant, after transplantation, even this kind of behavior improved. It's striking because we normally felt that, uh, you know, the cells we transplant mostly deal with uh, motor kind of uh, symptoms. But again, I mentioned that uh, the dopamine neuron, there are another group of dopamine neurons uh, that uh, are related to this uh, rewarding uh, mood, uh, this kind of uh, behavior. And so I would say I usually include both type of dopamine neurons. Of course, there are also possibility because uh, their improvement in motor function can also improve the mood kind of uh, symptoms. But in the monkey, we did look for potential unwanted behavior so far based on our limited uh, analysis we have not found uh, such kind of things. And so that makes me feel more confident that, that this kind of therapy may be quite safe, you know, just like what has been done in the fetal tissue transplantation. You can imagine you put the whole chunk of tissue, <laughs> so to speak. So I think it's reasonably safe. But uh, you raised a very good point. We need to pay attention to this type of things, you know. We're starting to run out of time. I'll take a few of the uh, okay. online questions, and then we'll finish up with the the in-house questions here. One of the questions is actually somewhat related to what you just answered. The, the questioner wanted to know, have you looked at other pathways uh, in your animals other than just dopaminergic, but also serotonergic and cholinergic? 
I think it's a good question because those neurons uh, may be also involved in, I think you just mentioned the, the wanted and the, the unwanted behavior. And uh, this is uh, almost a routine thing uh, for us to look for other type of uh, cells, including uh, serotonin, serotonergic and cholinergic neurons in our cells. And we usually observe a very small number of uh, serotonergic neurons. Usually the number is very small. And so that's why we feel that uh, the donor cell, the quality and the consistency of the donor cell is uh, very important indeed. Okay. Another quick question is, do you have any, do you anticipate there being any safety concerns with autographs versus allergenic grafts? Or do you think the safety concerns will be the same, or will they be different? I think for the most part, they are similar um, in terms of safety, because I think, as Alison mentioned, that we need to make sure that they do not end up with uh, producing other type of unwanted cells, right? Um, but in terms of uh, other type of safety issue, I think auto versus uh, allergenic uh, is probably related to the clinical side. I think, uh, you know, because in clinic, uh, you need to do immune suppression for allergenic transplantation, for example. And then you will end up with some kind of clinical related issue with uh, immune suppression and so on and so forth. Okay. Relevant to that, this will be the last uh, online question I'll pitch. Uh, the questioner wondered, given your concern for uh, an immunogenic response, have you ever thought about doing co-transplants, for example, with mesenchymal stem cells in your cells to, uh, I guess, diminish inflammation or immune response? Huh, it's a good question. I didn't think of that. Uh, so the issue where come that how to do the co-transplantation probably probably do not transplant to the brain, right? We don't want uh, mesenchymal cells in the brain uh, in that area. But uh, the co-transplantation to regulate the immune system, it's potential option, I think, to go along uh, if, it, if they can uh, regulate the immunological issues. Great. Those are the last questions online. Any last questions from the audience? Okay. First of all, thank you so much for the talk. It was very clear. Um, the question I have is regarding to the sex of the monkey, if you see any differences based off of the hormonal changes that are occurring. Oh, that's a good question. I think uh, in these animals, we didn't look at this issue. Um, we tried to do more work uh, to look at, uh, uh, because we usually uh, use uh, all the uh, sexes. We, we didn't see clear difference, but it's a good question, yeah. Any last questions in the audience? Okay, I guess with that, we'll draw, uh, we'll come to adjournment of this July installment of the Southern California Stem Cell Consortium. Take care, everyone. Thank you.